Welcome to Life Solved, the research podcast from the University of Portsmouth. I'm John Worsey, a writer at the university. My colleagues and I have been exploring how studies here are changing our world today and in the future. Last time, we explored how true crime amateurs were trying to solve cases and create awareness. This time, our focus turns to the authority of the police and the behaviour and attitudes of their officers. Talking like this is not anti-police. It's not about criticising the police service at all. It's about protecting the vast majority of good officers and making them feel that they can do their job safely. That's Dr John Fox, Senior Lecturer in Police Studies. There's no doubt that public confidence in the UK police has been damaged in recent times. Quite often through news stories about London's Metropolitan Police Force, commonly known as the Met. We've spoken before on the podcast about the Sarah Everard case, where Wayne Cousins, a serving police constable, abused his position to abduct and murder her. The Met is also under scrutiny for many other serious cases. Despite an overhaul, background checks for new police recruits has some way to go. This month, His Majesty's Inspector of Constabulary said that processes were inadequate in 13 of the vetting cases looked at over a two-month period. So, what improvements can still be made when recruiting new police officers and staff? And what's being done to ensure existing employees are being vetted on an ongoing basis? Who polices the police? John's understanding of the way that the police works, or doesn't work, comes from personal experience. Most police officers sort of have a limited lifespan, a career span, if you like, and I did my full career there, but you still retire or finish in the police quite young. I got the bug to actually go into academic work quite late, about 2005, I think, and I had an opportunity to go and teach in New York City in a university, and I took it. I am a, a researcher into various aspects of policing, especially around homicide investigation, police culture and police oversight, which is partly what we're going to be talking about today. I am a course leader for a course called uh, BSc Honours in Policing and Investigation, which is a distance learning degree course here at Portsmouth. And I've got a really interesting cohort of students, people who are actually in the police, people who want to join the police and people who just have an interest in this topic. Take a moment to consider how you see the police. In many parts of the world, including the UK, the force is made up of different regional elements. And it's easy to forget that the police force isn't just one national operation. A lot of the public probably do not realise that there are 43 main police forces. Um, they're called Home Office Police Forces because they are partly controlled by the government in Westminster. But there's another police force called the British Transport Police, which covers the whole country. Scotland has one single police force, and that's completely separate to England and Wales. Northern Ireland has a separate police force. So when we're talking about all of the police in England and Wales, I would always call it the police service, which consists of a number of individual police forces. It's ever so important that the public do understand that their local police force is unique to their county or their city if they're living in Manchester. And it doesn't necessarily mean that whatever's happening elsewhere in the country would happen in their local area. And if the structure seems a little complex, the police funding can be similar. Like the multiple forces across the UK, 
The money to run the service comes from different sources too. Some of it comes from national government, but not all of it. It's what we call a combined system of governance. So half of the funding for the police comes from the Home Office, and therefore the Home Office has quite a lot of control over all of the police forces and how they operate. But the other half of the funding comes from local taxation. And so it should mean that every chief constable, the head of each police force, is operationally independent. They should not be interfered with by the Home Secretary. And yet, on a sort of macro level, there is this umbrella all around the country where they have common discipline code, they have common pay arrangements. So every police officer in the country gets paid the same wage, wherever they are. And also there's an organisation called the College of Policing, which, again, oversees all of policing in England and Wales and sets standards and a training curriculum for officers so that they all should be trained in the same way. In the UK, London's Metropolitan Police Force is regularly in the news, very rarely for good reasons. So now we've established that the police force is largely regional and partly locally funded, are the Met Police unique in their challenges? John thinks that size is part of the puzzle. It's by far the biggest. It's a quarter of the whole strength of the police service. About 35,000 officers work in London. And the average police force outside London is about 1,500, 2,000 officers, that kind of number. So the Met is 10 times bigger than most police forces. Whether a force the size of London or one at a smaller county-wide level, the training for specialist officers and new recruits is nationally driven. Every person joining the individual force is trained to a national curriculum. But while the training might be standardised, the local vetting of police employees can be more patchy. The College of Policing has set guidance on vetting. Every recruit that comes into the police will have pretty basic vetting, to be honest. They will check that they haven't got a criminal record, check that they're not known to the security services as potential terrorists, that sort of thing. They will also check whether you're in debt, so they're able to get into your financial information. If you've been made bankrupt, they'll be able to find that sort of stuff out. But a lot of it is down to the self-declaration of the applicant. Now, as you move up through the police service, if you become more senior and you have access to confidential or secret information, then there's a higher level of vetting. And the most senior police officers will be vetted to the same standard as a government minister. And that's called developed vetting, where they do actually really dig into your background quite a lot. But very few officers actually have that level of vetting. And most of them have a pretty basic vetting, which arguably, in view of what's been happening recently, is not good enough. The vetting of the police predates today's online resources. In the 21st century, we can digitally check up on an individual's past and in some ways dig deeper into their background and history. But John thinks there is something missing from our current day methods. They pretty well know what an officer does in terms of their financial affairs, whether they're a registered criminal, but they don't know how an applicant officer thinks. And that's the big difference. So that to me is where things need to change. Now, in the dim distant past, police sergeants would go to the home of an applicant. They would actually go and visit their home and they'd sit down and they'd talk to family members. And undoubtedly, they have a bit of a snoop around, you know, check that the dog was looked after. It just gave them a fit. It sounds a bit haphazard and maybe a bit antiquated, but they got a feel for how the person 
lived in their private life and probably a bit more about how they thought. That's gone now for whatever reason. There is no sort of visit to meet family and friends of the applicant and then asking searching questions about how that person is at work. What are they like in their snooker club? Because then you'd get a much better idea, perhaps, of how they think as well as what they are. And that's not there anymore. And in fact, during COVID, I believe there wasn't even a face-to-face interview in most forces because they simply couldn't. So they were doing police interviews over Zoom. (laughs) And even with the best possible vetting, people can change and might well be promoted. Is there an argument to say that the vetting needs to be ongoing throughout an individual's police career? So you join the police and then 10 years later you have to fill in another set of forms which are the same as the first forms. They're still not getting into the head of the person or finding out what they really think. So I think that there needs to be much more than vetting. It's about, unfortunately, to say an intrusion into the workplace. And it's not that controversial. If you look at other industries, banks, they would have mystery shoppers. People who would come in to open a bank account, but they're actually employees of the main head office. And they're being sent in as undercover agents to find out how the bank staff treat them. So that's not unusual in any industry to have that going on. And the police really ought to be doing that if they're not already, as a matter of course, in order to have constant covert monitoring of the workplace, if that makes sense. And it will be uncomfortable maybe for the workforce. But what really shocked me about the most recent report that came out from Baroness Casey a few weeks ago was one quote in there from a female officer saying, I'm frightened to go to work. I'm scared of the police. Imagine that. You know, She is a police officer and she's scared to be there because of the attitudes of the people that she's working with. So any criticism of the police in this level is not about criticising the police. It's about trying to get the police to protect their own workforce and make it a safe place for the vast majority of good people who actually want to go there and do a good job. Aside from keeping their own house in order... Police forces in the UK today are also answerable to an external body, the Independent Office for Police Conduct, or the IOPC. John says this is a relatively new development. It's only since about the mid-90s that there was any independent body looking at police conduct. So I think that's a great step, and this is actually the third iteration of such an organisation, which is pretty powerful. They have their own investigators, so they can actually go and investigate police wrongdoing and specifically crime. They are a transparent organisation. They have a website where they publish all of their investigation reports so the public can see what they're doing. And it's possible, actually, that the fact that this organisation exists does make it seem as if there are more problems in the police than there used to be. And I think that's a really important point. The success of the IOPC and the fact that they are so transparent may give us a bit of a false picture that, oh, things must be worse now than they were. It may be just that before, when we didn't have an organisation looking at all of this, we didn't ever hear about it. One of the IOPC investigations shocked John. Operation Hotton looked into the behaviour of officers at Charing Cross Police Station in London. They were absolute thugs in uniform. You know, I, I'm pretty thick-skinned, but this is about the worst I felt, I think, I can remember about the behaviour of officers. And these people were talking about raping colleagues. 
talking about domestic abuse that they have actually committed or were going to commit on their own partners. It's just incredible to think that somehow these people are in the police. They are potentially the first person that a rape victim will come and talk to when they need help. You know, that is awful. So this is really much more than inappropriate. And I'm disgusted by what I read in that report. So what do we do about it? And it goes back to the intrusion that I think is needed in the police workplace, which is not much different to many other workplaces, where... I mean, take random drug testing. That's not an unusual thing now. Many police forces do it. There is no reason, what, as far as I'm concerned, why when an officer comes to work to, to report for their shift, the professional standards department are waiting and they say, OK, everybody put your phone in the box there. Unlock your phone, please. We're going to check your WhatsApp. Now, OK, people might be listening to this thinking they're not going to bring their phone to work. I don't care. It's not the point. What we're doing by these steps It's making it a hostile environment for the people that think it's okay to talk on WhatsApp about raping your colleague. Even if you don't catch them doing it, the fact that people realise that some serious steps are now going to be taken to try and weed them out will make them feel that they're, they're now the people who are not wanted rather than the people who are in the safe world that they perhaps thought they were in. So that's the picture in the UK and perhaps some of the solutions. What of police forces in other countries? Do they share similar problems or challenges? The US police are regularly in the news as well. And it's no surprise that law enforcement there is an even bigger and arguably less joined up operation. The United States of America has something like 17,000 police departments. And many of them are really small. So a small town in New Jersey, for example, that I'm familiar with called Teaneck, I know because I used to teach in the university there, has a police department. It's a tiny town and it has about 35 officers. They can't really have specialist officers, so they're not going to have a specialist rape team and they're not going to have child abuse investigators. So all over America, you've got this hodgepodge, really, of one huge police force in New York with about 35,000 officers, down to forces with 25 people. To me, that's just crazy. And there's not a lot of common training around in America. There isn't any overlaying body like we have here. That's the first thing. America is completely fragmented in its policing style. And that's because they have this passionate belief that local government is best. They don't want to be interfered with by a higher body in Washington, D.C. So every state has its individual laws, its individual attorney general, and then bringing it right down to the townships and the cities and the counties. They all want to govern themselves with their own kind of police force, which I think is disastrous in terms of common training. And what of the technology in the US? Does that at least help join up crime enforcement across the country? Do their systems talk to each other? No. Their computer systems would probably not talk to each other. Their radio networks probably don't have the same wave band so the winner in all this is the criminal because you know criminals aren't going to think oh i'm in t-neck now i better not go any further because they won't be able to talk to their colleagues in the force the more fragmented policing is in america i think the easier it is for criminals to commit crime cross-border so in that respect i think although britain is a lot smaller in terms of geography it's about the size of one state in america nevertheless it's certainly got its act together in terms of good information sharing between the police forces, common standards, common training, and 
what we call interoperability, where they can all work together if they need to on a big job. Just take an example of the East Midlands, so places like Leicestershire, Northamptonshire, Nottinghamshire. They now collaborate where they've sent detectives to a common major crime team. So five or so police forces now pull their officers into one major crime team and any murder or serious crime that happens in that area now is dealt with by this joint team. So there's a lot of collaboration now between forces to make it more financially viable, perhaps, to have a team of officers who are dedicated to work on serious crime. So that's really helpful. Going back to the point, America, as far as I know, has nothing like that at all. They're still very much silo-based in their own little world. And back to the UK. What improvements could be made to the Independent Office for Police Conduct to strengthen the public's confidence in the service? John thinks that some of today's problems are rooted in the past. They've been in existence long enough to recruit people and they've trained them to a high enough standard. But I think at the beginning they were floundering a little bit, not having the resources to investigate some of the things that they had to look at. So, you know, if you take the Hillsborough inquiry, the Hillsborough was a a case where 96 football supporters were killed in a football match back in the 80s. And over the years, there have been various investigations into how the police managed the crowd. And it's been uncovered that there was some police wrongdoing in terms of covering up evidence and so on. So the IOPC, even up till recently, were trying to investigate a huge event like that and For them to be able to manage an investigation needs a lot of resources. You're talking about 50 or 60 detectives, for example, and that's probably wiped out their entire national workforce. So I think that when the IOPC have to deal with something that's really big like that, that they probably struggle in order to get resources. And then inevitably they would have to borrow detectives from police forces, which I don't personally think is a problem. I have no doubt that actually those officers that would go and work on such a thing would be doing it with integrity. But the public may not feel that. They might think, well, it's just the police investigating themselves again. So in terms of improving, the training of the IOPC needs to be good and they need to have the resources available to investigate the most serious cases when the need arises. Despite everything, and perhaps after comparing the UK police with other services across the world, John remains positive about forces in England, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. I highly recommend it as a career. It has a few problems, but I wouldn't put anyone off joining the police at all. I mean, in the context of the world, I know it sounds a bit of a cliche, the British police are the best in the world. I wouldn't say that, but we're certainly up there somewhere. And it's something to be nurtured and valued. The reputation, the integrity of the police in this country is still way up there. And we need to not be complacent. A combination of old-school vetting, in addition to the existing checks, an enhanced IOPC with the resources it needs, and perhaps more intrusive monitoring of officers could go some way to further improve the reputation of the Met Police and the network of forces across the UK. Thanks for joining us for Life Solved. If you want to find out more about research at the University of Portsmouth, go to our website. You can also get news of the latest developments here at the university direct to your inbox. Just subscribe at port.ac.uk slash solve. We'll be back next Thursday and finding out that life in plastic isn't always fantastic. Despite what Barbie says, we take a look at the world's fast fashion obsession 
and explore the innovative research that could mean the plastic in our clothes is easier to recycle. Sometimes it's dealing with sort of levels of badness. There needs to be more transparency and more clarity over what is the technology right now? What are we working towards? But what claims can we really make right now? Catch you then. <laughs>